Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain and make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes, old and new, on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. One of the things that is most popular in movies today are the origin stories of superheroes. How did teams with superhuman abilities? find their call and join forces to save the day well today we are dipping our toe into that world and discussing the origin stories of two of broadway's biggest superheroes the superheroes of lightning together their credits include angels in america bring it to noise bring it to funk ragtime my personal personal favorite carolina change cabaret shuffle along the Iceman cometh and before they joined forces his credits included anyone can whistle do i hear a waltz hair no no nanette jesus christ superstar pippin chicago the kaja fall the originals folks uh attending just just a few of their over 200 credits that dot their resumes we don't know when they sleep but i'm sure they'll tell us to tell us what it was like to work with such legends as George C. Wolfe, Arthur Lawrence, Bob Fosse, Joe Milziner, Tommy Toon, Mike Nichols, The Rolling Stones, David Bowie, and so many more. Here are the dynamic duo of lighting, Jules Fisher and Peggy Eisenhower. Welcome, you two. Welcome. Ooh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we are so excited to have you now. Um, we, we, we're going to get to both of your origin story in a second, but first I'd like to just talk about your individual histories apart from one another. So I'm going to start with Jules, if that's okay. Jules, um, you could have been a Nittany Lion at Penn State, my alma mater, but you, you chose something else. Can you tell us a little bit about your path? I was uh, I, out of high school. I went to work in a summer stock theater called Valley Forge Music Fair. Uh, they built and eventually six music fairs. And I was an apprentice. And while there, I had applied to colleges and I was not a very good student. I got rejected everywhere except Penn State, which had to take me because I was a state <laughs> resident. Uh, and, but I, during that summer, I, I met two people who were working there who had gone to Carnegie Mellon. Carnegie, well, then it was Carnegie Tech. And they told me about it, and I'd already been accepted at Penn State. And it was too late to apply to another school, and I probably couldn't afford it at that time. Uh, so I went to Penn State, and I did poorly in everything but theater. And I also found that I wasn't getting enough theater. I wanted to be in it more. I wanted to be working on more shows. And at, at the end of the first semester, I was either going to be thrown out or, re, or leave when I left. Uh, and went to Philadelphia, where I worked uh, anywhere I could get work in the theater. And I worked in off-Broadway type theaters in Philly. And I got to be a stagehand in the, as they would load in the major shows in the Schubert, the Erlanger, the Walnut Street Theater, some of which are gone. Uh, and uh, at the end of that summer, I went off to Carnegie Mellon. And that's the beginning of my career. And what made you start to go, lighting might be the path for me? I almost have no answer to that, except to tell you the truth, which was I'd been interested in science. I liked science. 
I like the mechanics of science. I could not do the mathematics or the technical stuff. And I also was very interested in magic as a performer, as a child performer. And I uh, seriously started to study, and I performed a lot in from uh, children's shows to army hospitals. Uh, I was on Steel Pier in Atlantic City. I don't know if you know about that, but it's worth looking up. a, a great entertainment center in Atlantic City, and I was on Tony Grant's Stars of Tomorrow, uh, which I, where I ended up doing, I think, 10 shows in one week. Oh, my and, God. And, uh, uh, so I then I went off to Carnegie Mellon and uh, studied there for four years, and every summer I went back to a summer theater, pr- principally the music fairs, so I ended up by the time I was in New York, I had worked for nine summers in summer stock. And today, young people don't have that opportunity. Uh, and it was a great chance to do, basically, we did 10 musicals in 10 weeks. And you went to Carnegie Mellon, like you had said. And is it at this point in your college training that you met Joe Milziner, or did that come later? I actually met him before when okay. I was working in Philadelphia, when I... I helped load in uh, Most Happy Fellow, I'm thinking of. Oh, Most Happy Fellow. That opened in Philadelphia. Joe was the designer. And my job, This is remember, these theaters are all union. And I would be, uh, I would go and apply and say, can I help you? Do you you need someone else? So they were happy to hire somebody because the load in would use up all the union members in Philadelphia. There weren't that many. And... uh, so I got paid. I wasn't a union member. And my job basically was to take the lights off of the truck and carry them into the theater and put them down, take them back. And I noticed after a while that I seemed to be the only person doing that. Everybody else was watching that I was just carrying all this stuff in. And Joe was the designer. I went up to him and I said, can I get you a cup of coffee or something? He was very nice. He gave me a tour of the backstage. and. Uh, we, that's when I first met him. And uh, I remember one thing particularly I, I got from that moment was that all the hills and rocks and pieces, objects on stage were covered in velour, in like a, you know, fabric, silk velour or cotton velour, but they weren't rocks. They were, they were physical wooden objects covered in velour. And I said, why do you why do you use velour to cover things that to the audience that look like a rock? He said, because the, the nap in velour soaks up light, light goes into the spaces between the threads that, you know, that stick up on a velour fabric and therefore you get a higher contrast. So he could paint on the top and know that there would be shadows deep inside the paint. That was a great lesson. So now, Jules, I'm going to put a pin in your story, and we're going to swap over to Peggy, if we can, for a second, and talk about your origin story, Peggy. So, Peggy, when when did you first start to fall in love with the theater? Was it in high school? Was it college? What was the beginnings of your journey? Mine started really, really early, and um, it my the basis of all of it was really coming from 
music. Um, I started taking piano lessons at, when I was six years old. And um, I had very serious musical training. I had uh, teachers who were from Juilliard. And their, their music system, their school, was to educate and to groom uh, students for, uh, to become concert pianists. Mm. Oh, wow. And so they had a prerequisite that you, 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 not at age six, but like starting at age seven, you studied your, your performance and you also had to study music theory, which is all of the conceptual architecture around how music is made. And so I did that and uh, had to practice a lot and was very serious. But I also got exposed to the original cast recording records that were coming into the house from the library. And to me, that was, it was even before pop music for me, which was almost all R&B in my background. I didn't really find find rock music until I was much, much older. Mm -hmm. um, and so musically, I, I, I became rather sophisticated musically at a very young age. And I mean, I did not know what was being developed. I was just, everything was just sort of gut instinct. Mm -hmm. I found piano really, really challenging. Um, and I got to, uh, my, my folks uh, exposed me to lots of different performance um, forms, um, just general. I mean, nothing, no one in my family was in the business. There was no, no one really in the arts, but they were arts conscious and um, took me to see, you know, the local theater and uh, puppet things and um, the circus. And um, and you grew up, sorry to interrupt you, you grew up in Nyack, is that I correct? grew up in Nyack, yeah. yes. So and close enough to the city that you could kind of like yeah. go down and see stuff if you needed yeah. to, but yeah. I mean, I, was, I wasn't exposed until I was, you know, 13 or 14 to actually see a Broadway show, but I had been seeing local theater. And I used to love, like so many people, uh, to uh, act out the musical numbers in in the big living room window. Yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to tap dance, and, and I thought that would be really fun. And I went to a local theater, and I, I was excited by it. I saw a production of The Roar of the Grease Paint, The Smell of the Crowd. And a couple of my classmates were the urchins, and I just wanted to do that so much and uh so i asked my parents if i could join the local theater it's the elmwood playhouse it's been around for a long long time and um they they let me go down and hang around and um the only thing that you could do was sort of help out uh i washed out paint buckets and you know, I painted things black, the undersides of things. I took out the garbage and things like that. I was, you know, all eager. Um, and one day uh, I was working for the, the resident set designer who had done, you know, decades of shows there and was, was wonderfully talented. Bob Olson was his name. And um, through the general Eisenhower perseverance um, was always there when I was called upon. And one day, the grown-up who was supposed to run the lights for the rehearsal that afternoon on a Saturday 
didn't show up. And they had an important director there. And they said, okay, girly, you go there. I'll show you what to do. And they had the little um, a pinch uh, handled uh, little lighting. It used to be called an Edcatron, a uh, little lighting console. And um, what was interesting about it, at first, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was all eager. But I could see that when I moved the handle and I could see the light sort of bloom, it sort of had a bloom on stage. And to me, that was somehow musical, that it seemed like I was playing with the pedal, mm. which I knew. I mean, it, none of this was intellectual. Mm. It was all just visceral. So I kind of got into, you know, one of the things that my, my piano teachers had said kind of to my parents is, you know, we don't think your daughter's cut out to be a concert pianist. <laughs> However, um, she's, she seems to be emoting with uh, certain composers, particularly the romantic composers. We see that she's playing with emotion. And then the other thing that was unusual, they said, was in my testing, which was pretty average, my rhythm tested perfectly. And they said, we think, we think Peggy has perfect rhythm, which is a kind of a version of perfect pitch. I do not have perfect pitch. But somehow, you know, every time I was given a dictation, I, I, I spit it right out. <laughs> so um, these things were obviously influencing my, my, my activity at the theater. But I, I, I didn't know that. I, just, I was just playing that lighting console. And it's funny because sometimes people will say to me, well, why do you have to have that lighting console? Why can't you use this other one? I say, that's my Steinway. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's, yeah. that's my preference. It's, I can play Yamaha, but it's my Steinway. So I started hanging around this theater and uh, I did attend a couple of Broadway shows uh, with the girlfriend's birthday and, and stuff where we, somebody's dad took us in to, to see the shows. And I started to get interested in lighting at the theater. And I saw for a girlfriend's birthday, uh, I saw a production of Pippin and I was shot out of the cannon mm. because I saw what I recall, and I don't have a very good memory of, of a lot of these things visually, is I, I was aware of lighting when I saw the show mm. because I had been pl playing around with it at the theater and helping out. And I saw Ben Vereen pop out from the proscenium, white gloves, bowler hat, and hit with a spotlight, purple spotlight. And I, I lifted off my seat and it made sense to me at that point. I said, I know this is what I want to do. And at the time, uh, you know, Jules's work with Bob Fosse. And um, uh, there was, I think in that year, uh, there was a front of the arts and leisure section um, profile on Jules as a lighting designer and a producer. And I remember going down to Sunday breakfast and it was on my plate. And my mother said, that's the guy. That's the guy that you said about the lighting. And it was this, it was this, the New York Times article about Jules Fisher. And I was like, oh, 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 oh. And so we found, so I started to apply to schools very young. I skipped a year of high school. 
And one of the places I applied was Carnegie Mellon because Jules Fisher had been an alumnus. And I wrote an essay about, you know, who was the person you'd like to meet or whatever. And I interviewed at school. I applied to a lot of theater schools, um, but I interviewed there and I said, you know, about Jules Fisher and everything. And they were like, okay, all right. Yeah, we know know the legacy and everything. And I got in. So I I went immediately, went to, to, uh, right after my 17th birthday. And um, the next year, Jules came down to school to give a, a talk to the student body as a guest of, I believe, Mel Shapiro at the time was running the department. And I said, oh, my God. So um, I actually met Jules when I was 18 at school and, you know, asked some questions. You know, he gave a little speech to the lighting community, little lighting department, and asked some questions and got to meet him. And, of course, I, I, I wanted to move right back to New York, and I pursued him when I got back to New York. And I got very lucky. And Pe- Peggy, if I'm if I'm remembering this correctly from what I read, you didn't ask a question like, how do you use this instrument or, or what color should this be? Do you remember the question you asked him? Yeah, the question I asked my, my classmates were saying, well, which kind of color do you like to use and stuff? And I said, how do you know if you're good? <laughs> and, you know, or good enough. Yeah. And the answer was, I think that you gave was um, to be aspiring uh, not ambitious and do everything that you can in every aspect of, of lighting and give it two years. And, and I mean, something like that. It was, it was inspiring and practical at the same time. And in fact, when I, because I was from Nyack Mm -hmm. and I, I, I I did summer stock several years in a row and, um, in the same format, 10 shows in 10 weeks, the straw hat circuit was still, you know, happening in New England, which I was very, very young, young at. And um, I decided that I, okay, I'm going to tell you that the unbelievable story, which was after I met Jules at Carnegie Mellon, I called my mother and I said, mom, it's worth the price of tuition. I met Jules Fisher today. It was, it was a thrill. So she wrote a little note. She found his address. She wrote a little note and said, my daughter Peggy enjoyed meeting you. And she said it was worth the considerable price of tuition. And Jules wrote back, dear Mrs. Eisenhower, it was a pleasure meeting your daughter. Please have her contact me when she comes to New York or something like that, which I, of course, have. So yeah. I did pursue Jules when, when I got to New York. And Jules suggested, like, I, I got a meeting with him, like a 15-minute in- interview. And he said, I said, I could work as an electrician and, and a draftsman. And he said, um, I'll call the public theater and, and get you onto the crew roster. So with that phone call, I just stayed in New York because they said, you have to be on call in New York if you're going to be on this list. And I just waited in the sublet apartment and I got called to run a follow spot for a production of the death of von Richthofen at, as witnessed from earth, which was written by Des and written and directed by Des Mackinoff. Oh. And that's where I met Richard Nelson, who I started working for, for a number of years until uh, just a couple of years later, 
um, my number came up in Jules's studio. I think somebody wasn't available and, <laughs> and, and, and he called. And so. What, man, a, what a great lesson for oh, students out there. If I they, know. You know, if there's someone whose work you admire, let them know because you can lead to a beautiful collaboration like this. Okay. So now Jules, we're going to jump back to you for a little bit if we can. And we're going to talk about the pre-Peggy years for you. So this is, uh, you know, leaving school and coming up to New York and finding your own footing. When you got up to the city, how did you know what to do? Totally by instinct. I had no, uh, other than knowing about theater and lighting, I didn't know anything about getting work or how to do it. It was not in the union. Uh, And it just, it felt right. In fact, I didn't really answer your earlier question of how and when did you realize you could do lighting. It was in this first year of summer stock in the middle of a production. I think it was Carousel. And I looked up at the lights and I thought, okay, I can do that. It was it was that simple. I, all through high school, I was told you should be a doctor or a dentist or a nurse or whatever. Uh, you can't make a living uh, as a magician, uh, no one said anything about the theater. And this happened in the middle of that summer. And I thought, okay, I'll, that's it. That's what I want to do. And I think I can do it. When I got to New York, as I say, I went to summer stock every year and applied at every off-Broadway show that I saw happening. I offered to fix the dimmers or clean or wash up the bay. I would do anything as long as it was involved with theater. and. I the lesson I learned, which I tell young people, it happens a lot by who you know, fortunately or unfortunately. But the more people you know, the more chance you'll get to work. So if you you work on a show, and this is exactly what happened to me, I worked off Broadway uh, on a show called All the King's Men uh, from Robert Penn Warren book, and actually it happened because I was in. I was still in school my last year in college at Carnegie when a director who had left Carnegie, he had graduated, but I met him and worked with him in school, called me and said, look, I'm doing a play called All the the King's Men. Uh, Could you come to New York? So I went to the head of the the drama department and I said, look, I have this offer to light an off-Broadway show. Can I get out of school for a couple of weeks? And I did. I went to New York and did that play. Uh, It was rather successful. And I got a good review in the New York Times. Uh, It would have been, I think, uh, 1959, 60, right around that area. Okay. Easy to check that. Uh, It was on the East 74th Street Theater, uh, where uh, many plays have happened since. Now it's a bank building. Uh, but uh, at the time. So I did that, went back to Carnegie after my two weeks in New York, and I met while working on that show, the carpenter, the scenic designer, the producer, the manager, the director. And a month later, the carpenter called me and said, I'm working on an off-Broadway show. Could you come to New York and light it? I said, well, I have to ask permission from the school and all that. So I did. And kind of now, reluctantly, they said, okay. Uh, and the play was the, was Rain. 
uh, and it was on 10th Street and 2nd Avenue called, I think, the Cricket Theater. Uh, had a couple of major people involved. Uh, and I went back to school and I got another phone call. And this one was uh, from Gary Smith, who had been the scenic designer on the first play that I did. And Gary also went to Carnegie and became a very well-known television producer. I don't know if you're aware of Gary Smith's work, but he did the Barishnikov, uh, uh special, uh, one on Liza Minnelli. He, he, he was a major uh, producer of television shows coming from Carnegie. And he was producing, uh, he was designing uh, a play called, a musical called Parade with uh, music and lyrics and book by Jerry Herman. So I went back to the, to the head of the school and said, look, I'm being, a, and now they're not happy. No. I'm, I'm missing a lot of classes. <laughs> but I was going, in, I was getting to work in New York. I was doing shows. I had, uh, uh, in my career, I never worked for another designer. So I didn't know how that works. I just, it just felt right to me and natural. And uh, so here I am at, after doing three shows off Broadway, moving to New York. Uh, and all those people that I met, I would keep in contact with. I would write them a postcard saying, I'm just back from summer stock. Do you have any work? Or, you know, I'm available. Whether I was available or not, or whether I was coming back from summer stock didn't matter. I sent them a card. And I had a little filing cabinet, and I would check each one off. And my list got larger and larger and larger. The more directors I knew, the more producers, managers, and managers. Uh, the manager parade was Marvin Krauss. He went on to do many Broadway shows. And knowing him, I got other work. So it, it really is a fact that who you know is very important and how many people, you know, let me ask you Jules, if I can um, nowadays and Peggy, please feel free because you might be aware of this and I'm just not aware of it. So I apologize. But back in um, the 1960s and seventies, you know, you walk into a tech of a Broadway show now and it sort of looks like NASA. I was just, gonna say, you know, yeah. there's, there's 90 million computer monitors and all these people running around. Can you walk us through what a tech process for a Broadway show was like in the 1960s, in the golden age? I, I can talk through the 60s, and Peggy can do the 70s, 80s, 90s, and on upwards, <laughs> including last week. Oh, great. Uh, <laughs> great. Uh, it, when I started, uh, there was very little, as compared to today, technology. There was a very short history of lighting from the turn of the century. I'm talking about 1900. Prior to that, it was candlelight, uh, wax, uh, oil, lamps, uh, and then finally gas lamps. Uh, and that was it. There was, there was no motorized moving lights or color scrollers. There was just those simple elements. The, then along came uh, electricity and we had light bulbs. And light bulbs fit into little boxes that projected a beam of light. So lighting was really simple, and it was run or controlled by a resistance dimmer board, a long coil of wire that uses up the electricity and makes the light get dimmer. 
That lasted for 60 years, from 1900, uh, up, uh, well, not quite, in that a uh, control board electronically was used at Radio City Music Hall in 1930s. But it didn't get to Broadway until 1975 with a chorus line uh, in which Natasha, uh, uh, Theron Musser used an electronic control board. Uh, we had, prior to that, there were, uh, as Peggy knows well, we had no color scrollers. So when we did dancing, uh, there we had a wheel with five colors in it that was motorized. So you could pick one color, but you couldn't fade from one color to another. The wheel had to do it. So our technology was literally resistant dimmer boards, incandescent light sources, and maybe a color wheel. There was, and then along came, uh, uh, after that use of the electronic board on chorus line, everyone wanted it. It has lots of advantages, uh, particularly repeatability, complexity, you know, complexity meaning it can control many, many things at once that a human couldn't do. And uh, then we got uh, the lights themselves could change colors. All the moving lights have every color in the rainbow inside of it. So this vast jump of crude, uh, well, we, now, by the way, when I say crude, the lighting wasn't crude. The source of, of the light was crude. I mean, what Joe Milziner did with those lights on The Most Happy Fella or Death of a Salesman uh, and Abe Fader, uh, who did My Fair Lady was beautiful. Yeah. And yet there was none of this technology. So the process was very quick. We got into the theater on a Monday, if it was out of town in Boston or New Haven, and uh, loaded in on Monday and Tuesday. Wednesday, you did a tech rehearsal, Thursday, a dress rehearsal, and Friday or Saturday, you opened. And Monday you left for Boston or stayed one more week. And in New Haven, the shows didn't stay much more than a week because there wasn't enough of an audience. Yeah. You know, the whole anybody who wanted to see theater saw it the first week. So they you couldn't no one stayed long. Now a show can open in Boston and stay a month or even longer, depending on what it is. Uh, so that's the technology up until 1975-80. And now, Peggy, can you walk us through post-computerized tech process on Broadway? Well, the um, I was around when it was transitioning. Um, uh, I mean, I worked on on a computer uh, lighting console as a as a you know my late teens, oh. and I also worked as an electrician off Broadway, and I did run things manually. Uh, on on two scene presets, which was sort of a hybrid between you know the big handles and then they became like small little handles, like you would see on like a DJ console. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. And um, you know, I think the the, the mindset behind um, digital control of lighting is is really really deep in terms of being able to essentially tell a light to take a certain amount of time 
to do any of the things that it can do. Like mm-hmm. first, uh, you know, there there was a, a color wheel, then there was a color scroller. Uh, sometimes there were little motorized uh, patterns inside. Anytime that a light had what they call more than two plugs, um, meaning you had to run data to 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 make it go right. instead Smart. of just electricity, right. and you had another device that was that was plugged into it. Um, you had now more options uh, of of what you needed to apply to to any one light in any one condition. Then when you add pan and tilt, which is, I mean, was a dynamically monstrous change in lighting, being able to not just refocus a light where once it's on the king's throne and then in another scene it's on the queen's throne, but being able to travel that light around with all of the onboard uh, added effects that it could be getting smaller as it's traveling or getting larger or changing color, all of the parameters we call them, the things that make the light be able to do something different. Now you're applying time, seconds, broken up into seconds, you're applying it to all of those functions. So the idea that you might move a light in five seconds, but simultaneously have it fade from pink to blue in 30 seconds or whatever it may be, but now you've got this this feathering of time where you can, we sort of think of it as a sort of a digital pointillism. Mm -hmm. Now what used to be just an intensity channel, how bright is the light, everything else is fixed. Now you've got, and you would, let's say, assign a time to that. Now you're assigning time to a particular light that may have 10 things going on or eight things going on at once. So, you can see how quickly, exponentially, the, the data load is on the lighting designer. There's another thing, too, which I, I've, I've heard many other lighting designers also talk about, which is in, in, in the, uh, a fixed, con- what we call conventional light that you would perhaps add a piece of uh, a color filter to, you, you would pick a color in advance uh, based on what you think the play uh, is calling for and that scene is calling for. But you did have the option if that color wasn't quite right, you could change it out in a rehearsal day or something like that. And now that we can set up that literally thousands of colors in, in a, a, a moving light, we realize we don't have to choose in advance. We can say, well, look, I might want it warmer than that. I might want it cooler than that. I don't have to choose right now. And what you do is you force the decision to later in the process. So now, if you add that up among a lot of other uh, features of the light, now you're coming in with a a quite sophisticated piece of machinery that has no information in it whatsoever. And now when the moment comes where the director says, I'd like her to appear bathed in a warm light, maybe maybe we start seeing her here, Um, you know, it should come up imperceptibly slowly. And all the words that they're choosing now we're applying all of these different things in, in a later state. We haven't the color. We haven't dealt with the softness. We haven't done any of the things that we would have done in advance if we'd been forced to do it manually, in a sense. And it's a wonderful 
um, advantage of rehearsal, but it's also a burden on the rehearsal process. So what we've done over the decades of, of this is we have taken it back to the advanced process where we will take and map out uh, as much of that information for the play as we possibly can in terms of where it might focus, what the quality of the edges will be, what colors do I want already? You know, if I want to pick 20 colors just for this show that I think are just going to be just right or skin tone things that we want to have for our company um, so that we really are uh, equipped you know, to get to the rehearsal process. I think that's, that's, it was one big shift in one direction and a shift yeah. sort of back. Hello, this is Julie. When I'm not playing a woman pretending to be a man pretending to be a woman, I listen to Broadway behind the curtain. And I head over to Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And I search behind the curtain Broadway's living legends and set a monthly donation. Mine is $10,000. But you may give what you like. Whatever you give will be practically perfect. So, remember, Patreon.com. So let me ask you both a little bit about the, the actual process of, of working with the director and, and, and the process that the two of you go through when you first get a script and sign on to a project. And what I'd like to take as an example, if I may, is a show that was impacted by this the COVID-19 and, and the shutdown, which is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which never officially opened. Um, so we'd love to hear a little bit about your process on something that just never materialized. Uh, and then we'll talk about a show that did materialize. So the script comes across both of your desks. I'm assuming that you read them separately and then come together to discuss. Walk us through your process from you have the script, you've signed on to the project. What next happens? I, since you mentioned Virginia Woolf, we had either seen the movie seen a previous production of it uh, or the script we were familiar with. Uh, so that was a head start. We didn't have to uh, confer and say, what's this play about? I mean, we had a pretty good idea. And uh, the first, but that would be the first step with any script. We would read it and then sit with the director and try to find out what, what do they envision? What do they want to communicate? And literally, what is the script about? Because we read scripts that, that are baffling to us. I mean, we see the action, somebody walks in the room, but what's it about? What, what does the audience want to take home? What, you as the director, what do you want them to feel when you leave the theater? And so, are, are those qu questions that you sit down, and we'll take Joe Mantello as an example, because he was on the show a few uh, weeks ago and also talked about this process a little bit. Do you sit down and say, what do you want, or does it organically evolve out of a conversation with him and you can deduce from there? I think we, I think we do the former. Uh, we have plenty of ideas when we read the script, but we'd like to find out what he, he or she wants to tell or how they want to tell that story. Uh, and with someone like Joe, who's very smart, uh, we sat with him and he taught, described, he and the scenic designer had an idea of how they were going to go 
from scene to scene, which is not in the script. The script, every other production you've ever seen of Virginia Woolf takes place in a living room. You never go to the bedroom. You never go to any other rooms at all. Whereas uh, Joe wanted a set that transformed, evolved, and his uh, his evolution was that it gets more spare. There's less and less between them, less and less to protect each other. They have uh, they can't rely on their old methods of fighting with each other because there's the wall is gone. The window is gone. The ceiling, there's a ceiling in that play in the first scene, which is very difficult for lighting because how does light get onto the stage? Uh, so yes, with a, I think we would always sit down with the director first. We may come to it with an idea, like wouldn't it be interesting if the sun came out through this window? But basically, I think we want to lead, we, Peggy and I both say, we're trying to get into the mind of the director. What do they think? What is it they want to communicate? The playwright has already put it down on paper, but the director is bringing something new to it, how to express it. Mm -hmm. And then from that, you have those initial discussions about how many rehearsals do you attend? Well, I think it depends on, on what kind of show it is, who the producer is, how many weeks of rehearsal. Uh, we try to see as many as we can. Uh, but early on, the director may be working with an actor for three hours on two sentences. And there's no value in us being there. And also the director may not want us there. It's a very private process. And we have to respect that. Uh, it, it would be not just the director, but the performer, the actor it doesn't want to, remember theater is about letting your emotions out in some way. And to, to do that, you have to, it's, it's one of the only industries, if you think about it, where it has to happen fast. If you're working in an office, you can go to the uh, water cooler and meet somebody and be talk a little bit and you can do that for a week or two and then have a date and finally you get married you know two years later in the theater the actor's asked to let his emotion out on the first day of rehearsal i mean they're reading first usually they all sit around uh, we attend that the first day of reading but from that moment on that actor has to get to the core of their emotional stomach by opening night and hopefully even earlier. Uh, so we go to as many as we can, or I should say as many as they'll let us go to. The director will say, I don't want you there. Very simply. Uh, and uh, on a musical, we try to see more because uh, Peggy records every beat as she's watching a dance number. She locates where the light cues should come and that principally comes from her musical training. Mm -hmm. She's able to say, ah, here's where the light should get brighter. I can feel it in the music. I can see, I can see when the choreography brings it all together to, to a climax, whether it's the end of the number or the middle of the number. And she records that down. Ah, that's a cue. That's a light cue. We should do something there. And uh, so, yes, we pretty much always meet with the director and and often the designer has a lot to say about those things 
it seems like for both of you, you've worked with a couple of directors more than one occasion. One of the keeps popping up is the great George C. Wolf. Um, can you talk a little bit about your relationship with him and what do you enjoy about that collaboration so much that makes you return to it so often? Sure. Oh God. I mean, George is brilliant. He's funny. He's, he's, um, he's able to communicate the, essence of what we need as designers without really talking about lighting at all. He, he gives us, you know, the information that is really essential information about a scene or an environment or a space, a look that somehow uh, uh, stimulates us to produce light and I sometimes say that he sort of reaches down there and pulls it out like we're not even we're just a bystander and he's reaching down and pulling that lighting out of us in some way um and uh, he's inspiring could you give us an example of one of the notes that he might pass on to you that isn't just simply this should be blue this needs to be warm sure sure he would rarely say something like this should be blue I don't ever remember that. He would say uh, on Jelly's Last Jam, I'd like black to be a color. Whoever heard that? I know. That's, it sounds like something you would say. <laughs> yeah, but that's wonderful. That was, that was just so uh, clear to us what we had to do. On Noise Funk, he wanted the lighting to be another, and this was Peggy's contribution too, that the lighting would be another musical instrument. Well, who said? I've never heard that before. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And uh, he's he's brilliant. And he can think fast on his feet. He's a leader. He holds things together. He knows where he's headed. And he happens also to be a very good writer. So many of the productions, the ones I think I remember the most, are the ones that he wrote. Uh, and he would give us time. We could say to him, look, this is going to take a half an hour, so let's not do it today. Or uh, he'll say, take the half hour, fix, do it right now. Let me see it. And he, our, one of our best part of our relationship with him is that he will look at it. He will let us do it or put it up there, and then he will give us criticism mm. or say how he wants it to be done. When we did Jelly's Last Jam, it was the first production that we did with him with uh, a black company, primarily black company. And we had the company, we were in a number and we had the company in a group, sort of a clump as we would describe it. And we were trying to get the right kind of color. And he said he wanted it to be warmer because he said he wanted them to look black. You know, we, we were, maybe putting some kind of tint that was flesh color or pinkish or something. And he said, I want the blackness of their skin to look marvelous. And, and it was, it was a tonal thing that we worked with him a little bit. And it's something that we, we, we've used forevermore is how to really make the black skin tones, all of them, um, the natural, color and it was it was it was really interesting because he could find it he could see it and he could see that he wasn't getting it so what do you both enjoy so much about the lighting process there's a lot of problem solving which seems 
to you that you both enjoy. But what what do you really enjoy about it? Well, I would say one of the things that I enjoy so much is to try to give the audience the kind of feeling that I know I'm capable of getting, which is that visceral, actual physical excitement in your seat, whether you feel like you pop up a little bit or you, you know, you tighten your core because you're excited by something, something that makes you physically feel like you're almost going to laugh. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's very, very possible to create that with music and light. And to me, the basis of everything is musical, even if it's a play with no music or no music, it, it's the music of the play, the dialogue. And um, I think it's, for me, the real uh, kind of personal uh, freedom to have this feeling of, of light and music uh, together. Um, and I want to give the audience that feeling. I want, I want them to feel that physical thing. And light is so visceral. And light comes through, through to us to the amygdala first, you know, it doesn't, it bypasses the prefrontal cortex. We don't, we don't uh, intellectualize light. It actually hits us as an organism first. So we're reacting to it, whether or not we understand it, whether or not we understand the context of it, our, our bodies are reacting to it. And that direct connection, that is really exciting to control. That is really, really exciting to have a part of Mm. with the collaborators is that 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 visceral excitement and, and we also know that the audience and partly our other collaborators also don't know what we're talking about when i say i like after we've done finished the job or close to finish and we get through the previews watch that audience laugh more or cry more and we realize we help that by the, what the lighting is doing. We can't explain it to somebody and that we don't need to explain it to anybody, but we know that the light building a little bit before it gets to the end of the number is gonna make the ending stronger. Now that's not something I would tell anyone. We don't say it to the director what we're doing. We just build that in and then we, we sit there either an opening night or when we're no longer allowed to keep working because it costs too much. Uh, and we realize, hey, we, we helped do that. We made it more powerful. We made you cry more. We, I, or I like to think we did. Jules, I'd love to ask you a little bit and uh, about your relationship with Bob Fosse. Because, and, and Peggy as an audience member saw how transformative the lighting on Pippin could be. Can you, we've heard from now from an audience perspective of what the lighting on Pippin can do to somebody and get them into the life of theater. Jules, can you talk about the process of creating the design with alongside Bob Fosse for Pippin? Well, I, I always, uh, throughout my career, and, and Peggy and I still do it, we really spend a lot of time figuring things out. What are we doing? Well, you know, it's not by rote. We can't use the same light plot that we used two years ago. I often give the example of the sky or cyclorama at the back. We're always inventing another way to do it because we don't want to say, well, we did, we've did. we lit five cycloramas for five plays. Why don't we just use the same one again? No, we want to find the right way of lighting for that play. 
and in the case of working with Bob, uh, I, I, and this is true to this day, we don't want to fail. We, as I said earlier, we don't want pain, and pain will come if we get fired, or the director's unhappy. I don't, we don't want to leave with the director unhappy. Uh, so that in the case of Bob, he had very specific things he wanted to do. He was inventive. He would say things. I remember once I came to him with an idea. Uh, it was a tough a problem to do. And I said, I think I can solve it, Bob. Here's what I'll do. I'll put this this way. And I explained it all to him. And he said, have you ever, how do you know it's going to work? Have you ever done it before? I said, yes. He said, I want something different. <laughs> so all the times we worked with Bob and Peggy came in, luckily, to uh, have a couple of chances to really see him at motion and work, uh, he would keep demanding. He never accepted something, and particularly after he worked in film. Once he had worked in film and found out, I can do the sound again. I can make the actor repeat that until I get it just right, and that's what I'll use in the movie. You can't do that in the theater. The sound is going to be different every night because of the humidity in the room, because people are wearing raincoats when they came into the theater, because, and I had one example with Bob, which was that he couldn't understand why the piano sound, it was electronic piano, was different volume every night. And he, I, it was a show that I worked on as a producer as well. And he was getting upset about it because it was different. And I said, Bob, the, the piano player is controlling the volume with a foot pedal. So if he comes in one night with sneakers and thick socks, it's going, he's going to push the pedal further than if he's wearing sandals. Uh, and I explained that humans are doing these things. In fact, humans are doing everything to run the show. Uh, and it, it, he kept coming back. The more he worked in film, the more demanding he was. So he would ask, when that dancer points to, the, to that side of the stage, I just want to see his finger. Because he could do that in the movies. By close-up, he could bring the camera right in. You see just his finger. We can't do that in the theater. We, you always have the full expanse of that theater you're in, the size of the proscenium. With light, we can bring it down by turning everything else off, but it's still not the same as lighting just a single finger. And now for the for the both of you, I mean, you've done so many shows together separately. Is there one, what's the one that you would like to be remembered for the most? Jules Fisher, lighting designer of blank. Peggy Eisenhower, lighting designer of blank. Well, the, the, the corny answer is the show that I'm working on now. Of course. <laughs> of course. But I won't say that. I didn't say that. Uh, I, I think Angels in America would be the one. How come? Uh, well, I think the play is brilliant. Uh it, it, it moved me to tears when I read it alone and did. We saw every preview. Uh, remember, it's seven hours long. Mm -hmm. <laughs> People don't forget those two parts. Mm -hmm. And it was powerful for its time, and it's still powerful. And I also think as a factor, people don't, because there are a lot of, I did a play 
early on that won the Pulitzer Prize, uh, Red Roses for me. But no one produces that anymore. They're going to do Angels in America forever, in my view. So lots of things that were more musical and more bouncy and more fun. But for me, that was one of the uh, great plays that I worked on. And Peggy, what about for you? Interestingly enough, um, I would say that the number of projects, I would say the movie of Chicago was one of our uh, best collaborations and uh, it, it encompassed so many things that were so important to me. The, um, the legacy of Chicago, the fact that it was a full length feature, the fact that uh, it was a period piece for lighting, that the lighting was you know, part of each scene, um, that uh, it was just a great project. And, and I think it holds up. Mm. That, that's that's one and so oh, yeah. interestingly enough it's 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 the film version of the musical i didn't do but it's got you know the rob marshall and the bob yeah. fossey legacy and the jules fisher legacy um you know it, it really feels like a family piece to me so i would say that's oh, I like that. that's a great one and then for both of you is there a design that I don't want to say keeps you up at night, but sometimes you find yourself daydreaming going, oh boy, if I had one more chance on this, I know how to fix that. Or, oh boy, I should have approached it this way as opposed to that way. I have thought about that question because I, I've, heard, I've heard it. And so I, I've posed it to myself. Um, I, don't, I don't think so. Um, I, I can't think of one. Um, I, I would say that you know, if we were going to do a show again, we would do it differently because of the time. I think if we were doing another production for Whitney Houston, we would do it differently because so much has evolved. Mm. But that particular, you know, th those things, I mean, <clears throat> there, there, there are things that, you know, we, we still think of as possibly being corrected or corrective, but I can't think of one where, um, you know, the, we, we would choose a different direction only if there were a different director, mm -hmm. you know, that would be, what about you, Jules? You think? I, I would say the same thing. Yeah. I can't think of any that I would do that much different. I mean, there are some shows that we did. I wish I had another two days or three days. Shuffle Along was one of the few shows that I think we got to the end of the, uh, before it opened that I could say, I don't want, there's nothing more I want to do to it. Almost every other show we say, give us one more day. If we can have one more day to make the sky a little prettier. Just, we need four hours tomorrow and we can fix it. Uh, shuffle along, I think we got to the end. And I said, that's it. I think we did everything we could to make that a good show. And it was, it was a brilliantly designed show, a brilliantly designed show. You have, I'm assuming a lot of young people that reach out to you, people that are just starting their journey in lighting design. Um, what advice do you find yourself giving a lot? And is there something that you see running through these new, this new crop of designers that make you go, oh boy, I wish they would know blank before they entered into the industry, or I wish they had spent more time learning A as opposed to so much time learning B. Well, I would just like to say one thing about advice because for me it's changed, mm -hmm. and I, I I talk to colleagues, and there's a sort of a unanimous feeling about about what 
is different advice than maybe we would have given 25 years ago, which is work in multiple disciplines. Mm-hmm. Don't set your sight only on the theater or, you know, find at least one more discipline. It helps in so many ways and it helps creatively to keep you thinking outside the box, solving problems anew, learning new um, new techniques. Um, and and the, uh, we have always found they they feed on each other. So I think sometimes, you know, a lot of students come through and they and they only want to do theater because they're so passionate about it and feel like doing something for television or doing something uh, as an art director or, uh, you know, a, a pop thing or an industrial might uh, be a detour, but it's actually laying some really important groundwork for how you're going to be able to get, get into it and stay in it. Because if you've got these options, then you can weather these periods of, of, you know, shifting gears to go from one thing to another or waiting for something to build. It took us quite a long time to get a full-on film career. And um, it, it takes it takes a while to build a couple of things at once. But um, I think that's what I would advise because then you could, you could stick it out financially. Yeah. That's valuable. And Jules, same? I would say similar in that I would say also see everything. See every play, every musical, every photographic exhibit, every movie, every uh, museum show. See all the art that you can see and travel. Go to Italy. I mean, nothing can replace going to Florence or or seeing the Uffizi or uh, and movies. See see as many as you can. Uh, More and more movie directors want to work in the theater. but I think having a broad cultural view. And and lastly, I would say, have a life. Live, you know, be part of the world. Your collaboration has lasted uh, for quite a number of years now. When did you first start working together? 1985. 1985. Your, your professional collaboration has lasted longer than some marriages. Um, so... <laughs> But it, I mean, it's it is a partnership in every sense of the word. Mm-hmm. What do you both attest to to having such a successful partnership for such a long amount of time? Peggy is so good that she makes my in my contribution better, and I I just want to do good work, and I don't think I could do as good a work as I could do without her. And Peggy, for you, Admir- admiration, I guess. Admiration. I think um, you know. I, you, you both said that you know you love to uh, to carry on these podcasts because you get to meet your heroes. And I, I was thinking about that. I mean, Jules is a hero of mine, which sounds a little corny, maybe, but um, I have been influenced by his design work, which has become our design work. So I feel like I'm I'm sort of part of the design work of Jules Fisher. And um, there are so many reasons why this is a great collaboration, in my opinion. One of them is that we inspire each other. When, when, we're, when we're lost and looking for inspiration, we can provide it for each other. 
even if it isn't about a light cue per se, but it might be about the way it look uh, at the way of looking at something or just an idea. Um, it, it's um, it's um, a, a, a mental um, tennis game that is uh, always um, fulfilling and and uh, and then after so many years, you know, it reminds me of of some of these rock bands that have been together forever, you know, no matter what goes on, you're standing on the rock. We're yeah. standing on a rock. And so anything that you could throw at us, bring it on. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love that. We I love are that. the rock. I and so that. there's something so, um, so re re rejuvenating in that. And um, uh, there isn't, you know, a, a, an eight hour period that, goes by that I don't think, okay, I want to run this by Jules and see, if th does this feel right or does that feel right? It's like a mirror. Mm -hmm. That's great. I would love to ask each of you to answer this question, but looking at the other one, what is the greatest lesson the other partner has taught you, whether about life, whether about art, but something Jules has taught Peggy and something that Peggy has taught Jules that you still carry with you to this day and go, yes, this is a lesson that I will be forever grateful for. I have a very simple answer to that. Uh, discipline and uh, not ambition, but the uh, desire to make it the best possible. And Peggy brings me back to that all the time. Can we do it better? Can we don't don't accept this? It, we can add to it. We can do it in a different way. I may come up with an idea that I think is interesting and fun, and she'll say, well, couldn't it be better if we did it this way? And I'm in such admiration. And the, the unfortunate part is she's always right. <laughs> <laughs> and Peggy, for you, what is what has a lesson that Jules has taught you that you you take with you to this day? The thing, The thing that comes to mind is the position that Jules will continue to take, which is we are good enough. We are the ones to be solving this problem. When I say, oh, I, I don't know how we're gonna solve this. Maybe they don't think you know, that we have the right ingredients or maybe we're just um, you know, not in sync with the piece or, you know, they're, they're down on us for this because they're putting pressure that, that we won't uh, be able to achieve X for Y. And he reminds us of who we are and that I lose sight of mm. because it's very tough and it's, it can be, it can be on high stakes jobs. It can be scary too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, he reminds us and reminds me of um, what we are as a team, and then that kind of brings brings it around again. I would say that. Yeah. So then, here's our last question that we ask: Imagine you can talk to the young man who's coming out of Carnegie, the young woman that's coming out of Carnegie. What do you know now that you wished you had known when you were first starting out in the business? I would add. Uh, I won't be long because I want Peggy to answer. Uh, history. I don't think they. I don't think young people study or learn the history of what we're doing. How did Joe light those plays? What did he do? We don't. We don't see that. It's, first of all, there's very little recording, sadly, uh, of, of the Lincoln Center Library. Thank goodness, records almost everything now. 
but there was, I did many plays that there's no record of because they didn't do it then. Uh, and schools don't seem to teach much about history in lighting, who they were, where they, uh, I, I give talks every now and then, and I'll bring up Edward Gordon Craig. Nobody knows who I'm talking about. And I, I said, and it's, uh, or Adolf Appia. I mean, two absolutely giants of contribution to lighting, but it's not taught. And uh, uh, I also realized that people don't remember who did something. Uh, Mike Nichols actually said, nobody remembers who directed what play. Uh, and, and for him to say that, yeah. uh, was, he's right. You see a movie, you, you don't remember. I mean, not many people know who directed that movie. And uh, I think it's incumbent upon young people, new people, to suss out, to research, to learn, to find out what they did, how they did it. I'm telling you, there's the two main names I just mentioned, Oppie and Craig. Everything they wrote is a lesson for today. It's still valuable. And uh, I guess that would be the one of the things I would say to young people coming out. History, learn. Learn the and history. And see everything. And Peggy, what about you? Something that you know now that you wished you had known then? Uh, well, I would agree with Jules 100% about the history because I think it's, I was taught and I realized that I had a special education. I had a special education through Jules. I was so young and I learned so much history from Jules and, and also history about the short history that you gave, which is about the evolution of light. Please know that. Um, but I would say that it, it is something that I, I basically knew and basically followed by, I feel like should be said every year to every group, stay in shape mm. and save your money. Mm. But stay in shape is going to, is going to take you so far in through the business. It's very rigorous and very physically demanding. And I think people just think, well, I don't have time and it feeds into your craft so well. I think that's a, that's a key. I can outrun my, my 30 year old male assistants um, because they, because not all, but mostly don't have necessarily the, 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 the practice. And I try to encourage the practice because it really makes things so much, so much better. Great. Great. Jules, Peggy, thank you so much for joining us today. It, it is such an honor to talk to both of you. Your, your work is so incredible and life-changing and meaningful. And we thank you so much for sharing some of your secrets with us today. Yeah, Great to so be far. here with you guys. Thank, thank you. you for having us. Thank you. All right. Till next time, folks. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And a big thanks to the punchy players, Jeff Marquis, who is bringing back Lucy, Betty, Judy, and Morda shill for us. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you come in. In order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us just one star and you can make us feel as baddie, baddie, bad as Annie did in that 
really weird production in Boston where Annie dreamt that she was being adopted, but then she ended up back where in the orphanage, right? Back where she started. Yeah, true story. Rob saw it. Yes, and it was Betty. It was bizarre. I was there. I was. Oh, good. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.